Real leaders leave a legacy. They capture the hearts and minds of their teams. Their origin story puts the safety and well-being of their people first. Great companies ubiquitously have safe yet productive operations. For those companies, safety is an investment, not a cost for the C-suite. It's a real topic of daily focus. This is The Safety Guru with your host, Eric McCroskey, a globally recognized ops and safety guru, public speaker, and author. Are you ready to leave a safety legacy? Your legacy success story begins now. Hi, and welcome to The Safety Guru. Today, I'm very excited to have with me Anthony Corrin, who's a managing director at Avert. Avert is one of the leading training organizations in active shooters, which is a very important topic to talk about. We often talk about injuries in the workplace, but as Anthony will share, uh, it's a leading cause of death uh, in America in the workplace. So Anthony, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Eric. I appreciate you having me here to talk about this topic today. An important topic. So, so tell me a little bit about the situation around active shooters and, and why workplaces really need to think about investing in training around it. Yeah, so it, it's an unfortunate, I think, reality that we're all um, being faced with that active shooter and active violent events are increasing kind of year over year. These incidents are not confined to a specific geography or even a demographic anymore. They're happening um, in places that we frequent on a weekly or even daily basis, whether it's our, our workplace, if it's um, place of worship, schools, shopping centers, etc. These are now kind of happening where we frequent and it's an unfortunate reality that they're happening more and more that we need to be prepared on what to do if we were involved in one of those type of situations yeah and it, and it seems to me at least from from what i'm seeing in the news is that the the frequency of incidents is on the rise it, it doesn't seem to be diminishing by any means yeah and i'm sure there's lots of different um, causes based on each situation specifically going through a pandemic um, things have i think been bottled up a little bit and we're seeing especially in the workplace you know osha estimates that more than two million people are affected in workplace violence mm -hmm. um like you mentioned earlier it's one of the leading causes of fatalities on the workforce um that are being reported on a yearly basis and then there are incidents where again whether it's at a workplace or it's somebody who is connected to that workplace or one of the employees um mm -hmm. again they're happening more frequently and it's now a higher call to action to make sure that people know what to do similar to what we've kind of grown up with by getting trained for like cpr or right. fire drills or earthquakes active shooter training is becoming one of those now staples that people need to to learn what to do in that situation because seconds matter when something happens mm -hmm. on how you're going to respond and react and hopefully save your life and maybe save others at the same time and it seems to be industry agnostic. It's not just if I'm in retail, I need to think about this. Like you mentioned, it could be somebody in the workplace. It's almost any workplace now needs to start reflecting on, on how I prepare for this. Yeah, they don't really have stats on the types of industries, but it does go across all. I mean, retail, we've seen that Walmarts. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen it at large chains. We've seen it at manufacturing facilities. We've seen it, um, again, places of worship. Um, all, all different de denominations. We see it um, at schools. Um, those tend to really kind of uh, take the, the headlines for the news, et cetera. But mm -hmm. it's happening, um, again, in, in our backyards, and it's on a frequency that is increasing um, in an unfortunate, you know, circumstance. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about some of the tactics that you advocate around 
driving improvements or, or, or creating more uh, more focus on it. One of the things we talked about is situational awareness, and situational awareness applies to everything in the work environment. But tell me a little bit about how that applies to um, active shooter type situations. Yeah, so within the AVERT program, situational awareness is designed for people to be more aware of their surroundings. Um, mm -hmm. We use the phrase, which has been used for a long time for a lot of stuff, which is see something, say something. I think right. nowadays we all get caught up in a world where technology is at our fingertips <laughs> and we're so focused on getting access to all the things that are happening to us at once, we don't have as good of a situational awareness for us when we're walking either into our, our office if we're walking into a shopping center, we're in the parking lot, et cetera, and we try and get people to be a little bit more um, aware of their surroundings, something that looks funny or feels funny, um, usually our gut reaction is pretty right on. So we want people mm -hmm. to have a little more awareness when you walk into a facility to understand kind of how that facility is set up in terms of if it's shopping, if it's a grocery center. Are there multiple exits? So if something were to happen, you kind of have an understanding of what you would do or how you could go about either escaping or uh, evading a situation. Um, so if we're not familiar with where we are, we want to get familiar so we do have that kind of um, background for how to respond. Again, in those immediate seconds where you don't really have time to think sometimes, you just got to react. Right, so, so really scanning the environment, looking for anything that looks different, maybe somebody who's not seeming comfortable, I'm assuming, in, in their skin at that moment, or something seems a little bit off. Uh, also being aware of emergency exits, um, maybe even if you're in a restaurant, positioning yourself so you have a line of sight view to what's happening. Is this really what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that, and I mean, there's lots of warning signs too that we see in a lot of the situations when they do some of the research and the investigations mm -hmm. that there were signs of individuals later on that again were either overlooked or maybe just were not reported because they didn't really think that it would escalate to that to that level so again we want to make sure that we're taking the precautions if we do see something to alert you know someone in a leadership position whether it's hr sure. um, etc on things that we may be aware of because that may be added to other things that are going on that other people have noticed as well that could hopefully help have a conversation to prevent something from happening if, if that mm -hmm. were the case. So, so in, a, in a workplace setting, it's, it's really getting to know your teammates, your colleagues, seeing something seems a little bit off, something is a bit different. I know we've had several guests on the podcast talking about for a leader to actively care for their team members, right? To, to get to know them better, understand what, what's working for them, what, who they stay safe for, things of that nature. But that's also where you can see some signs that, hey, somebody's a little bit different today or something seems to be bothering them. Exactly, yeah. And we want to make sure people have that empowerment to be able to take that that to a leadership level to, again, just to make sure we're checking on people. We're making sure that everything's okay um, because we all have a lot of stresses in our life. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's always good to kind of check in and make sure that we're all at least responsive to that to make sure that we are taking everyone's uh, mental and physical um, health into uh, the highest importance. I think really important. So, so first one is really being aware of the situation, what I'm walking into, if it's a workplace in terms of people around me. Uh, so if I do encounter a scenario where, where somebody's, there is an active shooter, what, what are some of the things that I should be looking for or thinking about doing? Yeah, so our program is based off the Department of Homeland Security fundamentals of run, hide, fight. We use escape, evade, and attack. 
Um, but we always want people to first and foremost try and get away from danger. So running mm -hmm. or um, escaping. And you know, sometimes you don't know where to run to. If you're not familiar with the situation, if you don't have a designated area of where you should be evacuating to, or if you think that the uh, assailant may be in, in that uh, area, you obviously don't want to run towards um, the, the, the danger. So, um, but that's always first and foremost. If you can get away, you can get away safely, then that is always the best option to take first and foremost. So, so but that it strikes me if I'm in that situation that there's so much happening, it's chaotic, mm -hmm. you may not even know where the person's in where they're located, right? So so what do I do if I'm not sure? I know there's an active shooter, but I don't know which direction to go. Yeah, so the next thing to your point, if you don't know where that, that gunfire is coming from, because a lot of times, as loud as it is in the echo effect, you're not gonna know if it's north, south, east, or west. And if you don't know and can't see that there is a safe area um, to run to, then the next thing is gonna be, how do you evade or how do you hide? Um, and then understanding sure. the difference between like cover and concealment. So cover is going to stop bullets if you're behind like a uh, concrete wall or, or steel beam or something, whereas concealment is just gonna be able to hide you so that the individual's not gonna be able to see you. So like drywall or something. It's not gonna stop a bullet, but hopefully it's gonna keep you out of sight for that individual so they don't see that you are there. So understanding the nuances when you are in a situation where you can't run, what's your next best option? How do you hide and hopefully prevent yourself from being uh, seen by, by that uh, assailant as they are going through the, the facility. So, And that I think also gets into, if, you if you're aware of the surroundings, you know what's happening, you know, okay, this is a concrete wall or this, this is something that will shield me, or, or maybe you've seen a spot where you could go hide, which saves you that precious seconds. Uh, so, so assuming I can't evade, and I, I, I'm not sure about if there's a clear path for me to escape, so, so what do I do next? Because when you talk about fight and attack, it strikes me as pretty risky to go head on. Yeah, and, and, and this was, you know, developed this, this part of the training with um, our, our experts who bring a lot of over 30 years of law enforcement and private security mm -hmm. experience on how to disarm or fight an assailant if that truly is your last resort. To your point, if you can't escape and you can't evade, and now you are in a situation where I don't have anywhere to run, I can't hide, and they are going to be coming to where I am, what, what is my last resort? And we, we, we use some different techniques, simple disarming, whether it's a long gun or a handgun. Um, we use different, um, different types of things to do where you can use a group, hopefully, because you can always want to sure. use a team to overcome the assailant, if you can, versus a one-on-one -on -one situation. Um, to be able to get that that uh, that dangerous gun, long gun or, or handgun, away from the assailant, and then subdue them um, until police can arrive on scene. Most active shooter incidents end in under 10 minutes. So, and most of them are going to end before police even arrive on on, on the scene. So, mm -hmm. we want people to have that confidence that if I don't have any other um, way to get out of the situation, what can I do to hopefully protect my life and those and others. So we talk about how to disarm, obviously, but then how to go after the, the critical senses, so sight and, mm -hmm. and breathing. So, you know, attacking the eyes, attacking the nose, et cetera, that no matter how big you are, how strong you are, that's going to render somebody, um, no matter what, um, to be uh, on, on defense if you're taking those kind of uh, situations with them. So we want people to 
understand what they can do in a worst case scenario. We always talk about, you know, if you're in an office situation and mm-hmm. your doors don't lock, et cetera, how to put yourself in certain areas around the door so when they do walk through, then you can take that action of disarming mm-hmm. them. You can throw anything you can at them. At that point, there's no rules. So you do everything you can to hopefully save your life and try and render that assailant um, to where you can get the weapon away from them and keep them uh, contained until police can arrive and, and, and take care of the situation. This episode of the Safety Guru Podcast is brought to you by Propolo Consulting, the leading safety and safety culture advisory firm. Whether you are looking to assess your safety culture, d- develop strategies to level up your safety performance, introduce human performance capabilities, re-energize your BBS program, enhance supervisory safety capabilities, or introduce unique safety leadership training and talent solutions, Propolo has you covered. Visit us at propolo.com. So, so you mentioned earlier that most incidents happen within or end within 10 minutes, which is a lot shorter than I would have ever predicted because everything you hear is it feels for, for everybody that's there an eter- like an eternity. So, so how does that impact some of the actions you might need to take uh, as a result? Because I'm assuming the first responders, when they show up, they don't know that the situation stopped. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and police, when they arrive on the scene, their number one objective is to get into the scene and render it safe and secure right. before they can declare it as being safe. So to your point, a lot of times it's taking much longer than the actual incident because they don't know if it's been secure and safe at that point. Once police get on scene and can uh, secure it and either subdue the assailant or can identify that it's now no longer a, a, an active scene, that's when then EMS can respond and go in and treat those that have either been um, shot or wounded, et cetera. And we spend a good amount of our time within the training, which kind of sets ours apart from other active shooter situations, which is focusing on bleeding control. So we want people to become immediate responders. Um, mm. You can bleed to death in under three minutes. So again, if, if an active shooter situation is taking place in under 10 minutes, usually before police can even get on scene and then render it safe or secure, that individual who might may have been shot, and if it's not, if it's a severe arterial bleed, again, three minutes, um, you could die, and that's one of the leading causes of preventable deaths is is um, bleeding to death. We want people to understand how to pack a wound, how to apply a tourniquet, how to be able to save someone's life. That the mm-hmm. first responders, the police that are going through trying to render it safe, are not able to a- add assistance to, to those individuals. It's only then when EMS gets there that they can uh, start to get those, uh, those victims and treat them. That could be a pretty long time at that point, depending on the different scenarios and the scenes. So we really spend time on how to apply tourniquets, how to pack a wound if you don't have a tourniquet, all those things to hopefully help stop that severe bleeding so they can get the, the, the aid that they need when EMS does arrive and they are able to get onto the scene itself. Which also leads me to think that it's very valuable to inform the first responders because the sooner that they can let EMS come on board, the more lives get saved. Yep. Yeah, we, there's different protocols to do. If you do apply a tourniquet to somebody, you want to make sure you do things like um, put, put a cross or a T on the individual's forehead so when they're walking through, they know that somebody has a tourniquet on them. Um, it's also important if you can, if there is an active scene when you're calling 911 to report it, if you can let them know if there are some different casualties or fatalities taking place, 
um, any kind of descriptions you can give if you know the active shooter so they're aware of who it is or if there's multiple people all those things are going to kind of help you know the first responders when they get on scene to understand what they're going to be encountering potentially but we really want to give people the tools and the confidence on how to be an immediate responder in those critical moments when mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to get the immediate attention that they need from EMS when the scene is still kind of in an active situation. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. It's definitely makes you think that it's worth understanding how to how to prepare because some of these things I probably would have caught from from watching a movie or too many movies, but some of these I think are not are not necessarily the learnings and it's not the best place to learn from Hollywood on, on how to respond in a case like this. <laughs> no, and, and the hard part is, is, I mean, you don't really know how you're going to react. So we, sure. we talk about the kind of um, flight versus kind of freeze scenario. And, you know, everyone's going to react a little bit differently when you're put into that situation. And you, as much as we go through some of the training with it, until you're in that situation, you don't know if you have the flight or freeze exactly. reaction because your body's going to instantly, you know, choose one path or the other. We hope that the training allows you to understand going into it what your options are so you can respond accordingly. But we teach people to get somebody off the X. So if someone does, you know, freeze, you want to go up there and you want to make sure that you're kind of um, tapping them on the back in an aggressive manner to get them off that X to help them help them run or help them, you know, mm -hmm. evade etc. Because again, you just don't know how you're going to respond right. in that situation when it is a real life um, incident. So absolutely. So, so we've talked about some strategies of situational awareness the escape, evade, attack, or, or I think you, you talked about uh, Homeland Security referring to it as run, hide, fight. Uh, what are some additional considerations organizations can take to, to minimize the impact or the likelihood of, of happening? something like this happening yeah i mean i think it depends on the type of, of industry and organization so when we go into training we try and talk about different ways that you can hopefully you can't necessarily 100 prevent it but you can minimize mm -hmm. the different risks so is your facility open to the public if you're a retail situation obviously you're going to be a, a sure. public um facing if you're a, a, a private business do you have a specific key entry so employees with keys can only get in or like a key fob etc do you have cameras? Do you have an alert system throughout your organization where if there is an emergency, active shooter situation, fire, anything else, that you can alert employees of what's going on in an immediate situation? So we try and walk them through things like that. We also look at how their facility is laid out. Um, again, something you wouldn't really recognize a lot of times that would make a difference, but do all your doors open inwards? Do they open outwards? Do they all have locks on them? Do they have windows mm. on them? Certain sure. things that, again, we kind of take for granted and don't really pay attention to, but in that type of situation, if it's a, an inward opening door, then how, how do you barricade that door? We kind of walk through. If it's outward opening and doesn't have a lock, you can't barricade it, so what could you do in that situation? We, we, we go through some different kind of drills where we show how you can set up a room if someone were to come in to hopefully distract them enough to where you can then, in those split seconds, go for that attack phase and you can hopefully subdue them. So, um, but we go through different scenarios um, and we really try to look at each facility kind of as a standalone situation because everyone's a little bit different on their workforce. Again, are they a public facing uh, company? Do they have uh, security on site? Certain facilities have mm -hmm. private security there. So there are different measures you can take. None of those are gonna completely 
prevent something from happening because a lot of times it's going to be either an employee or a a, a known person to that mm. company. So um, it's usually not just a random person that's going to walk in and, um, and and have one of these incidents happen. So we just try and give people the understanding of what to look for and then obviously that situational awareness, keeping a little bit yeah. more of a closer eye on things. Something does seem a little bit funny or someone appears to be acting a little bit differently. We want to make sure we're taking those as serious as we can to ensure that we're having those conversations early and often before something were to happen. Yeah, and I, I think it matches a lot of themes you've talked about before in this podcast around, like I share actively caring. If you know your team members really well, you'll recognize some, th- some signs that maybe something's off. You may recognize some themes from a, a mental health, so maybe some challenges that are, that are impacting them. You may not necessarily think there's an active situ- uh, shooter situation coming out of it, but the position of care is the right way to, to drive forward. Is there um, value in, in doing drills? And I bring this up because I, I remember once many moons ago, I was uh, in a business meeting and it was in a nuclear site, obviously heightened sense of security in that environment. And in the middle of it, <clears throat> they ran a drill. Uh, is that something that, that's recommended in businesses as well? I mean, for us, we like to do drills um, because even though you can't replicate a true situation, you start to get some of the muscle memory down. So like, for example, for tourniquets, never put on a tourniquet before right once you a few times you start to understand how it works in a emergency situation you don't have time to kind of read the instructions and and kind of look through it etc so it's not a difficult task but something if you're not familiar with it you may be a little bit kind of uh, hesitant to do something you've not never done before so we want to get people to do some of the actions we do some of the, the the barricading drills to kind of show them how to set up a room how to do the disarming if nothing else, to give them the confidence that they can do it if they were to have that situation. Some people have never even handled a gun before, and while we use mm-hmm. um, orange kind of replica weapons, um, sometimes that's a little bit of a um, of an uncomfortable situation. So we want people, if, if they're open to it, to at least understand what you could do to get that a weapon away from somebody and to have that confidence. So if something were to happen, at least in the back of your mind, you know you've done it before and you know what to do and how to go through that kind of process of, of actually doing the disarming or putting a tourniquet on or packing a wound. Those are things that we want to get people f- familiar with to where that muscle memory is at least there and they know they've done it before and they could do it again if they had to. It's not dissimilar to earthquake drills that you'd encounter in Southern California or actually most of California just to make sure people are prepared in case something were to happen. Yeah, just like CPR. We, we do CPR, we do compressions, all that kind of stuff. So people get the understanding of what the actual action is. So when they do or they happen to have that situation where they are called upon to do it, at least they've done it before and they have that kind of skill, kind of not necessarily ingrained, but they are familiar with it. Great. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing some of your insights around it. Hopefully uh, none of the listeners will ever have to encounter a scenario like this. Appreciate you at least sharing some tips. If somebody wants to get in touch with you to, to learn more, what's the best way to, to do that? Yes, yeah, so our website is get-avert.com, and we go through the whole process of the course itself. You can become an instructor to train either within your organization or we have instructors across all of the U.S. that we can deploy to go out and train organizations. So um, check out the website. Um, we got a lot of resources on there and love to talk more to people that are looking to take their training to this next level to ensure that their employees or their or them as individuals have the skill sets um, to act if a situation were to happen. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. 
Thank you, Eric. Like what we do? Share this on your socials and tell everyone. Thank you for listening to The Safety Guru on C-Suite Radio. Leave a legacy, distinguish yourself from the pack, grow your success, capture the hearts and minds of your teams, fuel your future. Come back in two weeks for the next episode or listen to our sister show with the Ops Guru, Eric McCroskey.